The Boston Book Festival believes in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. At the trial of Abraham, constitutional lawyer Alan Dershowitz defends Abraham from charges of attempted murder of his son Isaac. Biblical scholar Harvey Cox prosecutes the case against Abraham, and federal judge David Barron holds court. It's the trial of the millennia. Good morning. I'm Debbie Porter. I'm the founder and executive director of the Boston Book Festival, and it's great to see you all here this morning. I am sure you're all as excited as I am to hear this sensational trial of Abraham. I won't ask you all to rise, but I will ask you to give a hand to our presiding judge, the United States Judge for the First Circuit, David Barron. Uh, so I'm David Barron, and I'm, I'm very excited to be uh, here with you this morning uh, for this great event. One of the things that uh, federal judges get to do in their spare time is to oversee moot courts, and this is probably the moot court to end all moot courts. <laughs> uh, we're here for the trial of Abraham, and we have about an hour in which our two uh, distinguished authors and presenters are going to be making arguments on both sides of this classic story in which Abraham takes his fateful trip to the top of the mountain with his son Isaac. Our prosecutor is Professor Harvey Cox, and he's going to argue that Abraham is guilty of attempted murder. My former colleague, Alan Dershowitz, is, as his custom, the defense counsel. He's representing Abraham in absentia, and he's even doing it pro bono. Now, once each side has a chance to present its case, it's going to be up to all of you to serve as the jurors, uh, and you'll be deciding whether Abraham is guilty or not guilty. I'll be giving you a charge uh, with instructions on what the law is that you need to consider. Normally, we'd require a unanimous verdict, but our jury is an unwieldy size, so we're going to bend the rules a bit, and the majority is going to decide the case. Uh, after the trial ends, we'll have a chance to have uh, a discussion about the two fine books uh, that our lawyers have prepared for us. Uh, Professor Cox's How to Read the Bible and Professor Dershowitz's Abraham, the world's first, but certainly not last, Jewish lawyer. And then at the very end of our panel discussion, I hope we'll have a little bit of time for questions, and if you just line up in front of this mic uh, at the front, we'll be able to take them. So let me introduce uh, the lawyers uh, for today. Arguing for the prosecution, as I said, is Professor Harvey Cox, who's one of the most well-known theologians uh, in the country and in the world. Professor Cox has been teaching at Harvard since 1965. He currently serves as the Hollis Professor of Divinity at the Harvard Divinity School. He's published over a dozen books on religion. He spent time working at Temple University, Oberlin College, and Andover Newton Theological School. And his book, The Secular City, Secularization and Urbanization, in Theological Perspective, has sold over a million copies worldwide. He published How to Read the Bible earlier this year. Arguing for Abraham is Professor Alan Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz holds the distinction of becoming the youngest full professor of law in the history of Harvard Law School, which he did when he was just 28 years old. From 1993 until his retirement, in 2013, he serves as the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard, and he's also, as you know, served 
as a defense uh, lawyer in several prominent criminal cases and, unlike many lawyers, been the subject of a feature Hollywood film. Professor Dershowitz published more than 1,000 articles in various publications. He's published over 30 books. He may be writing one even as we speak. These include The Best Defense, The Advocate's Devil, and the New York Times number one bestseller, Chutzpah. And his latest work, as I said, is Abraham, the world's first, but certainly not last, Jewish lawyer, which was released on October 6th. So that sets the stage for our trial. I won't try to present the facts because, of course, that's the lawyer's job. And so we'll start with the prosecution and Professor Cox. Uh, your Honor and distinguished uh, counsel and members of the jury, thank you for this privilege of taking part in this trial. I will prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that Abraham, that venerated figure in three different religious traditions, is in fact guilty of attempted murder. If we were not dealing with a biblical patriarch, it would be obvious a person takes another person out to a mountaintop, ties them to a pile of wood, picks up a knife, is, and is ready to plunge the knife when that person is interrupted and prevented from carrying out the murder by the voice of an angel who points out that there's a ram in the thicket which will do just as well as this trembling and panic-stricken young boy that he's already tied there. This, I submit, is attempted murder. Attempted murder. In the world of today, we have lots of people who do heinous things because they say God or Allah or the devil or something told them to do it. This is not, however, an excuse which holds up in a court, Your Honor, or members of the jury. We hold these people responsible for their deeds no matter what they tell us, the voice inside them has been telling them to do. Hospitals are full of such people, and in my training as a minister and a chaplain, I've met some of them. They always seem to pick me out as the one to tell that God has told them to do this or that. Some of them are very interesting people, and if they say God has told me to cut all my hair off or shave it all off or let it grow long, we just smile and say, yeah, but if they say God has told me to kill someone, then we take measures. And if they start to kill that person whom the voice has told them to kill, we stop them if we can, and we, we charge them with attempting a murder. Now, through the ages, theologians and rabbinical scholars have argued, I think not persuasively, that Abraham didn't actually kill Isaac, but let me uh, remind you that we are not here to charge Abraham with a murder, but with attempted murder. For advancing over his son, holding the knife, having tied him up, I think it is clear from the record itself, and I intend to demonstrate this in a moment, that indeed Abraham did intend to kill Isaac and, and to commit this murder, and would in fact have continued with it had he not been prevented, stopped, interrupted by the angel. Now we all know, anybody who's had any experience in court, 
And I haven't had that much, and I hope I have not too many other experiences in court. <laughs> uh, my two colleagues have that intention is a famously difficult thing to demonstrate. I suggest that if we're going to talk about the intention of Abraham, whether he intended to kill Isaac or not, we stay with the text and not fly off into various kinds of rabbinical or theological theories about Abraham and what he was doing. So I suggest we stay with the text, and just so we are sure we're going to stay with it, I brought the full text along in its Hebrew and in its English translation. I'll use the English translation in case your Hebrew is a little <laughs> weak today. I'll get to that in just a moment. Let's go back to Abraham. Think about his history. Is he the kind of person who does what that voice in his head tells him to do? No matter how painful it is, anyone else? Yes, he is that kind of person. Earlier on, the voice had come to him when he was living in Ur of the Chaldees and said, leave your family behind, all your loved ones, your parents, your siblings, leave and get out of here to a place that I will show you. Did Abraham hesitate? No, he does what the voice in his head tells him to do. And in this case, he was doing what the voice in his head told him to do. Now let us hope that this was not the voice of God. What kind of God were this kind of test for anyone? Not the kind of God that I want to trust or have any confidence in, surely. It was a voice in his head. But Abraham is the kind of person who obeys what the voice in his head tells him to do. Now let me ask you, what if that voice came back again? and said, look, Abraham, there's a defense counsel and there's a judge whose decisions and work I don't really like too much. And I'd like you to take them off into a local mountain and kill them. Is there any evidence that Abraham would not do that? He is a voice follower. He's a follower who does what he believes, and we hope is not, the voice of God tells him to do. He intended intended and was in the act of killing Isaac when he was interrupted, stopped, and prevented. So this is a, a tenuous, tenuous theory that he didn't really intend to do it. He did, and I will continue to uh, argue, and I think demonstrate, that he did in fact intend to do this. Otherwise, he could have stopped somewhere along the line. It took three days to walk from his home. With, with, uh, he, he sent the servants away. The passage says that they wouldn't have any witnesses. Went up to the mountain, tied him up, and held the knife out. Now, some might say, well, look, there's no actual murder committed. Let me remind you again that we are dealing here with attempted uh, murder. Some might say, well, look, no harm was done, really. Why don't we let this poor old deluded codger, he's, over, he's 100 years old now, according to the text, off with something, a rather light sentence, maybe a pleasant stay in a psychiatric institution. I would suggest one that has bars on the windows, by the way. I think I can show you that harm was in fact done. Harm was done to the only witness we have for this crime, and that's Isaac. There were no other witnesses, but there was Isaac. He was there. He was the intended victim of a murder. Let's not dissimulate. A sacrifice by any other name is a murder. 
And that's what Abraham was intending to carry out. No, Isaac was there, and I suggest to you that Isaac's life was ruined. He was traumatized. He was ruined for the rest of his life. His own father, whom he loved and obeyed, had tried to kill him. Imagine what that does to a young child, to the parental bond, which is absolutely necessary for the uh, nurturance of children. It's, it's gone. But now the, the biblical record before and after uh, this incident, where I'm going to try to stay with the biblical record here and not these theological speculations, uh, c convinces me and I think I convince you that this was a traumatized young man who never really recovered. As we're told by post-traumatic stress specialists, it goes through your entire life. It ruins you. Now think about what happened on the way home from this incident. Just imagine, they're walking home. Well, according to the text here, nothing happens. Nothing. Abraham doesn't apologize. He doesn't hug the child. He doesn't try to explain him nothing, not a word. Then what happens to Isaac after that? Well, there's an old rabbinical story that he was sent back to the Garden of Eden to try to recover from this ordeal. Or uh, the other, another theory uh, is that, uh, which I got from Alan's book on Abraham, by the way. <laughs> Some rabbis think he was set off to study Torah. Good luck. <laughs> Studying Torah to overcome this post-dramatic stress? In my attempt to study Torah, it sometimes causes trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Furthermore, we still have Abraham at large. What if the voice had come back to him and said, hey, hey, look, I really made a mistake here. This time, I want you to really kill Isaac and we're not gonna intervene, no angel is gonna intervene, and furthermore, while you're at it, why don't you kill your mother, Sarah? Wife. Do we have any indication, excuse me, your wife, Sarah, do we have any indication that he wouldn't do it? No, of course, he's a man who follows what he thinks God is telling him to do. Yes, Isaac's body was spared at the last split second by the intervention of an angel. Now, what kind of moral sensitivity do we need as we're about to commit some heinous, heinous crime to have an angel as the only thing that prevents us from carrying it out? Not a very highly developed moral conscience, I would say. Now, Isaac is discovered, is, uh, I've consulted all the uh, histories about Isaac, this poor traumatized kid, and they all agree that he was timid after this incident, he was weak, he was a cipher, he was a non-entity, nothing really significant. He didn't do anything really significant. In fact, when the king cast lustful eyes on his wife at one point, he said, look, <laughs> tell him you're my sister. Uh, a cowardly uh, 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 action. Not the behavior of someone raised in a setting with strong family loyalties. Now, some far-fetched commentators say that Isaac was not in such terrible shape afterwards. Look, his name is Isaac. It means laughter. He must have been a kind of jolly fellow. What if his laughter, in fact, was a kind of simpering giggling <laughs> that is associated with someone who's completely lost any sense 
of who they are have lost confidence in their world, in their family world, in their parents, and creeps through life as this crippled, as this emotionally crippled person. Now to complete the pathetic story of this poor guy Isaac, the only witness, the only witness to this crime, it indicates that Abraham, even on his deathbed, does not bless, does not bless his son. There is no record of any conversation between Abraham and Isaac after this incident. Why? My, my guess would be that Isaac went off and hid somewhere. Who wouldn't live in the same house with a, with a parent who's, who's tried to kill you? I think I'd run off too. I'd stay away as long as I possibly can. He knew what the intention was. He was perfectly clear what the intention was. The intention was murder, and it was going to be a murder of him. That's the only witness we have. So even on the deathbed of Abraham, he does not bless his son Isaac. A complete violation of all the patriarchal universal customs of his time. He doesn't do it. Uh, and Isaac also, in, in evidence of his weakness, allows his brother Jacob to steal away his birthright. No, this is a traumatized young man, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. And, he, and we cannot allow the person who perpetrated this to wander freely through the streets just because he said, well, look, God told me to do it. And furthermore, I didn't really do it. Why not? Well, because this angel came and told me to stop. Do you really want that kind of person in your neighborhood? <laughs> I would like to close, Your Honor, if I may, by going back to this uh, famous text uh, in Genesis and, uh, and close with that as my final remark. It's Genesis 22.10. It used to be on the screen here. And you have to remember when you're dealing with, with a Hebrew scripture that you start at the back and go forward. Let's see, Genesis uh, 22, here we go. Yes. Uh, yes. Here's what the text says. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. Let me repeat. Abraham picked <laughs> up the knife to slay his son. This was no charade. This was no uh, uh, kind of dissimulation. He was to slay his son and then the angel of the Lord came, and so forth. Now, just in closing, let me use what uh, the, the gentleman who used to be my colleague at Harvard, Professor Dershowitz, when we taught together, a very enjoyable course, used to call a law school theoretical. Remember our law school theoreticals? Uh, so here's, a, here's another way this text could have ended, and Your Honor, this will be my last remark. And then Abraham paused. He dropped the knife. He stretched out his arms to heaven and he said, no, God, no, I will not do this. I will not go through with it because killing an innocent child violates my deepest moral principles, the very ones you instilled in me at my creation. And then the angel says, there, look, there's a ram in the thicket. 
You can take this ram and use it as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. Ah, that's a theoretical. That is not, not what the text says. It says that Abraham raised the knife to kill his son. Abraham was in the act of killing his son. He was prevented, he was interrupted in a murder attempt. He is guilty of attempted murder, and I ask you for that finding. Thank you. <clears throat> well done. Okay, Professor Dershowitz for the defense. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Your Honor, I want to start by initially conceding a very important point that Professor Cox made. I will not argue that the voice of God is a defense. My defense is directly the opposite of what was argued by Professor Cox, namely that there is no evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that Abraham actually intended to kill Isaac. I will prove to you that this was not only a test by God of Abraham, but it was a test by Abraham of God. As Professor Cox said, Abraham should have asked, what kind of a God would want me to sacrifice my son? And that's exactly the question Abraham asked. And so Abraham said he would go along with God's command up to the point where he actually had to plunge the knife and he would see if God actually intended for him to kill Isaac. And if God actually intended for him to kill Isaac, he would have said, you're not my God. So that's the defense I want to put forward to you today, and I want to prove it by four different points. First of all, Professor Cox asked, what kind of a man is Abraham? He says he's a voice follower. No, Abraham argues with God. Abraham says to God, cursed be thou. The judge of all the world will not yourself do justice when God threatens to kill all the sinners of Saddam. And Abraham says, what if there are 50 righteous? And God agrees and said, if there are 50 righteous, I will save the city. Abraham, the great lawyer, then begins the plea bargain. What if there are 45? What if there are 40? He gets God down to 10. He's not a voice follower. He is an arguer. How could the same man who is willing to argue with God about strangers, the sinners of Saddam, not be willing to argue with God or follow God when he issues an immoral command to kill his own son? So to the answer of the question, what kind of a man is Abraham? Abraham is not a voice follower. He's a man who thinks for himself. He's a man who decides what's moral and what's not moral. Second, God had already promised Abraham that through Isaac shall a great people emerge, people who will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so if Isaac died, God would be breaking his promise. What kind of a God? would not only ask you to sacrifice your son, but would break his most profound promise to Abraham. So Abraham knew, he knew that God would keep Isaac alive. God also promised that through Ishmael, his other son would be a smaller nation. God got the numbers wrong, to be sure, but nonetheless, he had made these two promises. And Abraham saw that God kept his promise with regard to Ishmael, remember that the story before this is the story where Abraham is asked by Sarah, take your son Ishmael, send him out into the wilderness, and he sends him out into the wilderness to die with no water. What happens? Same angel 
Same angel comes down, provides water, saves Ishmael. Ishmael becomes the founder of the Arab people. So Abraham had already seen that God keeps his word. When God says, I'm going to make a great people through Ishmael, he kept his word. When he said, I'm going to create a great people through Isaac, he will keep his word. And so, the third argument is that Abraham knew that God kept his promises. Look, in the beginning, Abraham wasn't so sure of God. That's why he argued with him, and he persuaded him. But by the time of this story, he was persuaded that God kept his promise. Uh, And remember, too, that Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide the lamb. True, that promise came true. God did provide the lamb. He also says to his young men, we will return. Abraham is not going to lie. He says to his men, we, that is Isaac and I, will return. He knew, he knew that God would ultimately not require him to sacrifice his son. And here is the most important point. And the important point that makes this a case that doesn't fit into the paradigm that Professor Cox has described. In many attempted murder cases, the defendant loses control over the action. For example, somebody throws a child off a mountain and somebody miraculously rescues him, whether it be the hand of God or whether it be some some natural phenomenon. Not in this case. When you throw somebody off a mountain, you're giving up control. It means that you're relying completely on God. Abraham didn't trust God to that degree. He lifted the knife, but he kept control. He never gave up control. And if the angel hadn't come down, he would have turned to God, he would have dropped the knife, and he would have said, you're not my God. Now, I understand Professor Cox's mistake. I understand it because (laughs) Professor Cox is a Christian. By the way, the Jewish Bible isn't read from back to front. It's read from front to back. It's the English Bible that's read from back to front. So let's be clear about that. One came before the other. But in the Christian tradition, it's interesting, in the Christian tradition, there are some theologians who say that the real interpretation of the story is that Isaac was actually killed, that Abraham actually plunged the knife into him, killed him, and then God resurrected him in a sense, foreshadowing the resurrection of Jesus. But that's, as you said, we have to quote the text, the transcript of the trial. I hope clearly so, yeah. the transcript of the trial does say that he, uh, intend, that he uh, did not kill him, but that the sword was stopped. And so we go back to the concept of reasonable doubt. We go back to the concept of better ten guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. Now, where does that come from? That comes from Abraham. When Abraham argues with God about the sinners of Saddam, he says, what if there are 10 righteous people? And God says, if there are 10 righteous people, I'll spare the city. Well, what if there are only eight or nine? Abraham, in effect, says, eight or nine may not be too many. We have to strike a balance. We can't ever have certainty, but we need a high probability. And the high probability is better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, as you sit here today, You cannot be absolutely sure of what Abraham would have done had the angel not interceded. I had a case in Tennessee a few years ago where my client was very mad at his sister's boyfriend who had burned her, and and the guy was denying it. My client went to his house, lifted a knife, and threatened to plunge it into his body if he didn't confess that he had burned his sister's house. As he was doing that, the police came in, and made him drop the knife. Very much similar to here. 
And we argued that you, don't, you can't know for sure. You can't know with the level of specificity required of intentionality that he would have actually killed. Maybe he was just threatening. Maybe he was bluffing. Maybe he was testing. We don't know. And I submit the same is true here today. I want to take one minute just to answer a few of the points that were made by my distinguished opponent. He talks about Isaac, and the name is Yitzchak Tzchok from Laughter, and he says that that name was given to him because he may have been giggling as a manifestation of the trauma. But the name was given to him when he was born, seven days after he was born. And the reason for the name is that everybody laughed when Sarah said she was pregnant at age 95. There was laughter, and that's why the name Isaac is given to him. So that's not uh, an argument. He also argues that Isaac was deceptive, that Isaac said when the king lusted after his wife, that's my sister. Where did he get that from? He got that from Abraham. Abraham did the same thing twice, one with Abimelech and once with another one of the kings. So I think Professor Cox, with his brilliant argument, is still grasping for straws. His strongest argument is that the text of the Bible said he lifted the knife to slay. That's an ambiguous concept, to slay. Of course, he wanted God to think he was going to slay. And remember who wrote this book? God. It's written from his point of view. <laughs> he may not fully understand that Abraham was testing him. And so I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you have any reasonable doubt, if you sitting here today cannot be absolutely sure that but for the intervention of the angel, Abraham would have killed his son, what kind of a man would do that, as, as my distinguished opponent said? I submit to you, Abraham, the man who argued with God, is not such a man. So I urge you to acquit my client, Abraham Ben Terach. Thank you very much. Okay, well, we knew Abraham would be well represented, but we have to say that uh, Professor Cox, uh, not a lawyer, has certainly proved that uh, he could be if he wanted to be. So a round of applause for both of our, our lawyers. <laughs> the next slide. Okay, it's come time for you uh, to make a decision as to whether uh, Abraham will be found guilty or not. And for those of you who have served on a jury, uh, you'll know how this proceeds. For those of you who haven't, uh, the judge needs to instruct you on the law before you uh, get into your deliberations. So here is the jury charge. And then what I'd like you to do is just talk to your neighbors for uh, a minute or so, and then we'll just do it by a show of hands uh, as to whether Abraham is guilty or not. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is your duty to determine the guilt or innocence of the defendant Abraham. Last name, not specified. <laughs> in order to make that determination, you must keep the following principles in mind. First, Abraham is entitled to a presumption of innocence. You may find him guilty only if the prosecution has proved his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Second, you may have noticed that Abraham did not testify. The defendant in a criminal case has an absolute right not to testify since the entire burden of proof is on the prosecution. The fact that Abraham did not speak on his behalf has nothing to do with whether he is guilty or not guilty. It may have something to do with whether he exists or not. Whether he what? 
Third, Whether he exists or not. I understand that this case has been highly reported for the past 2,000 years. <laughs> and before. But your prior impression should not influence your verdict. You must decide the case solely based on what you've heard today and not on anything that you may have read or heard outside of this courtroom. You have to consider the argument presented at trial, not newspaper accounts or other testaments, old or new. <laughs> Finally, you must be completely fair and impartial, and you are not to be swayed by any personal feelings about the defendant's race, national origin, sex, age, or religion. Okay, here are the elements uh, of the charge. Abraham has been charged with attempted murder, and to prove him guilty of attempted murder, the prosecution must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Abraham had a specific intent to commit murder, that he took an overt act towards committing murder, and that he came reasonably close to actually carrying out the murder. An overt act is some actual outward physical action as opposed to mere talk or plans. A defendant has not taken an overt act toward committing a crime if he has merely prepared for the crime. Now, if this were a normal criminal trial, as I said, we'd have to have a unanimous verdict. But if it was a normal criminal trial, we wouldn't be talking about this case at all. So <laughs> we'll do it by a simple majority, which means please take a moment to speak with your neighbor about whether Abraham, under this legal instruction, should be found guilty or not. And then after you've completed your deliberations, uh, I'll ask for a show of hands to determine the verdict. Okay, begin your deliberations. Okay, let's come, that wasn't very long. Let, let's come back order in the court. Okay, we're going to come back for um, the vote now, and, and I know that there's probably more time for a deliberation on an issue of this consequence, but I want to make sure we have a chance to discuss uh, with our authors. So, all those who find Abraham guilty of attempted murder, please raise your hand. Oh, that's pretty good. My. All those who find Abraham not guilty of attempted murder. Hey, that's pretty divided. I think you won, though. Uh, I think the only thing that we can say about this is we probably have to have a retrial. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, brilliant. <laughs> We're going to plea bargain. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit together. Have you done this routine before? Is this the first time that you've... <laughs> we did the trial of Jesus yes. at the Harvard Divinity School. I see. And he lost. Oh, it was a hung jury. <laughs> it was a hung jury. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Professor Cox has really written a wonderful book on how to read the Bible. Yeah. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about our event today that just like uh, a hammer tends to think everything is a nail, uh, a lawyer might tend to think everything is a case. And so I, I just wonder, how are we reading the Bible today by presenting this uh, as a legal case? Is it a helpful way to think about the story of Abraham or Isaac, or is it misleading us? You know, I think one of the things we learned from this exchange and this whole event about reading the Bible is lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> I think too many people put on a kind of a sober, uh, overly pious view when they open the pages. It's full of very interesting, rowdy, uh, uh, and uh, of course, uh, viciously uh, cruel, and other kinds, but full of humor, jokes, reverses. 
it's all in there. So I hope that if we do one thing today, it's to help people to um, read the Bible, open to what the Bible is, is, is saying, and the kind of tone that it's using. The tone is different from different parts of the Bible. See what the tone is and tune into that tone. Terrific. Yeah, you, you have a great line in the book, which is that there's not really a single character in the Bible that anybody should emulate. Wow. Which is <laughs> but that's, that's different. I mean, that's the Jewish Bible. Uh, the Christian Bible and the Quran are different. I mean, the Quran, Muslim parents can say, be like Muhammad, and Christian parents can say, be like Jesus. But the Jewish tradition is always that every one of its biblical characters are deeply flawed. And you learn more from looking at deeply flawed characters than you do from perfect characters, because in life we never experience perfect characters. But you don't think Abraham was deeply flawed. I was going to oh, say, I, right. I concede, Your Honor, <laughs> that Abraham was deeply flawed, just not, you know, many of my clients are guilty of many, many things, just never, never the crime that I'm defending them for. But, but Alan, in, in your book, and really the takeoff point for your book is that Abraham is a, a person greatly to be uh, admired, and not least of all because of his capacities as a lawyer. Right. So, so say a little bit about what makes Abraham uh, such a great lawyer. Well, there are six episodes I write about where he really acts like a lawyer, different kinds of lawyers. First, he shatters his father's idols. And we know there have been lawyers who have been idol shatterers, the, the Jewish lawyers who defended Nelson Mandela and helped to eliminate apartheid. Nine of the 12 lawyers at Ravino, I think, were, were Jewish lawyers who were idol shatterers. They, they weren't looking to change a system. They were looking to dismantle a system completely. Many of the Bolshevik revolutionaries, the Zionists, the original Zionists, were all lawyers, all Jewish lawyers. So uh, there's that kind of lawyer. There's the lawyer who argues with authority. They argue with God. There's the house lawyer, the house Jew, the one who goes along, the one who says, God, you want me to kill my son? Sure, sure, he nanny, here I am. Uh, there is the guy who prepares his witness improperly by telling his, sister, telling his wife to say she's his sister. There's the lawyer who rescues uh, people who are in trouble. Abraham rescues Lot. And finally, there's the real estate mogul. Abraham makes a great deal buying the machpala, the cave, for his, his wife. So I use those six paradigms of lawyers to talk about the six kinds of lawyers that we see today in society. And Abraham embodies all of those. He embodies all those, both the good and the bad, because lawyers are in imperfect profession, as you know. I've... If we didn't have an imperfect <laughs> profession, we wouldn't need judges like you to set us right. There are some imperfect judges, sadly, uh, as well. Um, Professor Cox, in your book, you talk about three different ways of reading the Bible. Uh, there's a narrative, a historical, and then a spiritual. And the idea of the spiritual is that you should be in dialogue uh, with the text. And right before this, uh, I thought it was ironic in your argument, we were talking about the literalist way of reading it, but of course your argument depended very much on a literalist uh, view of the text here. But if you were to think about this story spiritually, I mean, what, what does turn on whether Abraham is guilty or not? Does anything, does it really matter for how we understand the text, whether we think he's guilty? One of the great puzzles in reading the Bible is these terrible things it says God told people to do. Mm -hmm. If you think this is bad, read the book of Joshua, where God tells Joshua and his, and his uh, invading army, kill all the people in this village and the next village and the following village and all the animals and so on. Now, what can you do about that? There are a couple of things. One was to say, no, 
God didn't tell them. They thought God, maybe they thought God was telling them, but God didn't tell them to do that. Uh, or that's not the kind of God we want to have confidence in or believe in. Uh, the other thing, and maybe it's a little more important, be very careful not to associate or identify the objectives you have as a nation or as a people with what God wants. We have too much of that in the world. So if you read the book, uh, read the Bible in this kind of critical and thoughtful way, it has a, a very important lesson like that. Don't claim that God is telling you to do these things. Well, the great philosopher Woody Allen put it very well when he has a dialogue about this story and it has God. Uh, How could thou do such a thing, he says to Abraham. Abraham says, but thou said, God, never mind what I said. Dost thou listen to every crazy idea that cometh thy way? Abraham, see, I never know when you're kidding. Uh, And so I think that puts very well what Professor Cox has said, namely, you have to understand when in the Bible it is God talking and when it is the Bible that somehow whoever was writing the Bible at a particular period of time was trying to make a political point relevant to the age, but not particularly enduring in value. We agree on that. Good. (laughs) So I want to invite people, if if you have questions, uh, to line up and then... um, uh, we can make sure to take some of them as we continue uh, our conversation. Alan, I'm curious whether in your practice you've relied on the Bible ever in cases. I have. In fact, I used uh, the biblical story here in that case in Tennessee. Um, I have used biblical arguments. Did it work? It did. Okay. We, we won. Uh, we won on other grounds. Yeah. So we don't know whether we would have won on this ground, but the, the case was dismissed and the guy went free and lived a good life. But yes, and I use the Bible in teaching as well. Um, you know, it's interesting. One great tragedy I taught for 50 years at Harvard is in the beginning, I could quote a story from the Bible and everybody in the class would understand my reference. Today, you can't do that. Right. You, today, you can't quote Dostoevsky, I remember once talking about Raskolnikov and a student came over to me and said, what case was that? Uh, the, the canon has evaporated. There is no common language anymore growing out of Bible, literature, uh, or, or any of the other, and that's a loss, I think. Uh, but you, So we have to educate our students, whether you're a religious person or not a religious person. You have to, and you know, I was thrilled at the blurbs in the back of this book come from a rabbi, the chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Harvey Cox, the most distinguished uh, Protestant theologian perhaps in the world today, and two atheists, Steve Pinker and Rebecca Goldstein. So, you know, you can be an atheist, you can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can get a tremendous amount out of reading the Bible, which is why I tremendously commend everybody to read Harvey's book. For me, it was so eye-opening. I wish I had it when I was a yeshiva student. I might have made it through the yeshiva without the rabbi screaming at me if I had a source as to how to read the Bible. I didn't know how to do it then. Harvey, can you say just a little bit about what Alan was just talking about, about how we've lost that common text of the Bible as a shared document that people can refer to and understand, or whether you even think that's true? Oh, I think it's true, alas. And I think one of the reasons it has happened is because of the insistence of fundamentalists, Jewish and Christian fundamentalists, and Muslim fundamentalists, that we have to take the whole thing literally or walk away from it. And I'm suggesting and and, and arguing in my book that there are all kinds of ways to read the Bible. 
And uh, it, it, it is, I think you're not an educated person unless you know. So let me ask you a hard context. question. Would you allow the Bible to be taught your way in public schools? Sure. Okay, so I you would, would, yeah, even though the Supreme Court has obviously said no because they see the Bible as a religious text, but you would allow the Bible to be mandated as part of an educational curriculum as long as it was taught in a non-proselytizing manner? Uh, I may be over my head here, Judge, but <laughs> I understand... Go right ahead. I, I understand the Supreme Court's decision to have been against the kind of required reading to the class of right. the Bible and required prayers. Right, right. But it's said in the same decision, however, teaching about religion yeah. should be part of the public school curriculum. I think we should have acquaint students with the Bible, more and more now, certainly with the Buddhists and, and, and Muslim texts, we're living with neighbors like this, sure. or they're going to pick it up from the gutter. Mm -hmm. I think it's better to learn it in the, in the classroom and learn it responsibly taught, and I would be glad to make 500,000 copies of my book available. <laughs> but can you imagine the outcry if anybody tried to teach the Bible from your point of view, or the Quran from a moderate, uh, more secular point of view, or the Jewish Bible? the uh, religious, the extreme religious elements would go crazy. And they would say, better not to have it at all than to have you teach a watered-down version of your kind of secularization of the Bible. So won't we, in the end, get into an impossible conflict over how to teach the Bible? And isn't the fact that we don't teach the Bible today in public schools really as you say, a reaction to two extremes, the extreme of let's teach it our way or not at all, and so the civil libertarians say, let's do it not at all. It's better than your way. It would be interesting if we had evolved it in a different way and were able to teach it the way you write about it. I hope we can evolve yeah, yeah. in that direction. But I'm doing my best to move so You're doing a great, great job. Let's take a question first. Go ahead. Uh, the first of my quick questions is directed to the Venerable Defense Council. Uh, you mentioned, you cited a few times when Abraham had the chutzpah to talk back to God That's right. in Sodom. So I'm wondering what your response would be to the question, if he were not, if Abraham was not intending to kill Isaac, why in this occasion he didn't speak back? Uh, and the second question is... Okay, let me do the first oh, okay, first. Sure. Okay. First of all, you may not know, but the word chutzpah actually derives from this episode. It's used for the first time in the Talmud, chutzpah kala'ape shemaya, which in the Aramaic means chutzpah even with regard to the heavens. And the reason he didn't talk back to God is he was trying to test him. He wanted to see how far God would go. He wanted to see if this were a God. Remember, he didn't know for sure. He wanted to see, in my interpretation at least, that this were a God who would actually let him go through with it, and then he wouldn't have gone through with it. So he argued with God once. This was a different kind of test. Thank you. And the second, can I just ask Harvey? It's such a challenging way of reading this story. What, what do you make of that? Uh, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let me ask. I mean, suppose he'd gone further. Suppose he had actually plunged the knife into Isaac, missed the aorta, right, okay. taken it out again, and said, "Oh well, I'm still testing God. To see what he's going to, <laughs> I would he's not. Going to I would not have made my argument, and I, I would have not gotten as many votes as I got today <laughs> if I had made that argument. Obviously, I could make the argument only because. He doesn't touch. He doesn't actually touch Isaac, and we don't know for sure whether he would have. So, but you know for sure. It's, it says he picked up the knife to <laughs> kill his son. Right, We're right. trying to stay with the text here. Right. Uh, the second se question. The second question is for uh, both of you. You uh, um, referenced 
some folks think that Isaac actually was killed, and I would like to ask you both to respond to that mysterious piece of text where Abraham comes down off the mountain seemingly alone. I think whatever the texts are that say that Isaac was actually killed are obviously spurious and marginal and not to be taken seriously. I didn't even know there were such texts until I read uh, Alan's book. I'll go look them up now. I think it's ridiculous to, uh, to read that. He was not killed. We're not trying him for murder, as in some previous trials that my colleague has been. We're trying him for attempted murder. Mm -hmm. But I agree, I agree with Harvey that clearly Isaac was traumatized. Isaac, um, Sarah never talks to Abraham again. Right. Sarah, you know, Sarah, it's Sarah's only child. Abraham, the sexist, doesn't even tell Sarah he's going to do it. By the way, this may be the revenge on Sarah, because Sarah is the one who tries to kill Ishmael. And she's at fault in that story. And maybe God was trying to teach her a lesson. You want to kill somebody's child? See how it feels to have your child almost killed. But Abraham never speaks again to Sarah, never speaks again to Isaac. When Sarah dies, Abraham sits Shiva, sits the seven days. Isaac's not there. Uh, so clearly, it's a family that has been torn apart by this episode. Hmm. So if they had tried him for child abuse or something like that, I think I would have copped a plea. <laughs> uh, uh, Your Honor, yeah. speaking of copping a plea, I was expecting you were going to plead temporary insanity. Ah, why didn't you make that argument? Well, I, you know, uh, I, I don't think it would be an effective argument to make in the current state of affairs because of exactly the arguments Harvey made. Harvey would have out clearly out-argued me on that one. Where do you draw the line? People say, God made me do it. God made me, you know, stab the people in Jerusalem now. God made me do this. God made me do that. The argument, God made me do it, is just too broad and too general. And I wouldn't, I don't, also don't feel comfortable making it. And I don't like to make arguments I don't feel comfortable making. Sometimes I have to. Suppose, Alan, uh, God called you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, I've gotten calls from federal judges, but, which is close. <laughs> but, but, it, and suppose he was worried he was going to be tried for attempted murder on your theory. In other words, if you're right mm -hmm. and Isaac was testing God, God, in a way, on your account, is intending to have Isaac killed. Well, no, God is intending to have Isaac intend to kill God knows that he's not going to let him do it. So God can't be convicted of attempted murder because he knows the end of the plot. He controls it. I, I talked about Abraham controlling it, but ultimately the control is in the hand of God. So I think I could get God off uh, on the charge <laughs> of attempted murder. Now that would be a client I'd love to have. On the other hand, if you lost that case, oh my God. that's pretty bad. <laughs> okay. Hello. I think an important point of this was that um, a father owes a higher duty to his son and, you know, not to put him in danger and not to, um, you know, for either one of his sons, it shows that he didn't care about that. History shows, you know, people on earth have pitted family members against each other and um, to allow, for a father to allow that, no matter what the outcome is, would show... Look. Look, you know, Abraham's not the only biblical character. Here, Harvey can correct me because he's the expert, but my recollection is Jesus says to his followers, to follow me, you must hate your father, your mother, you know, you must be a fool for Christ, you must put everything before me. Doesn't uh, Jesus throw out that challenge to his followers at some point? 
It is so reported. It is so reported, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, religion is a jealous mistress, and it can create terrible conflicts within the family. We all know, even in modern life, that when people have arguments about religion, it can be extremely disruptive of family life. This is maybe, I mean, one of the ways of interpreting the Bible is God's telling human beings, life's tough. You know, I never understood this story until I went to Israel once during the middle of a war, and I saw that every Israeli parent was being told, bring your child, your only child, boy or girl, to the mountaintop, offer him as a sacrifice. He may live, he may die, but every 18-year-old has to serve, and you, life's very, very difficult. And uh, in, in the book, I, I talk about a, a scholar who says, why do people care about this story? Only one person almost died. Look at what the Jewish people have been through historically, the pogroms, the uh, Inquisition, the Holocaust. That's what life has been all about. So the Abraham story is just a foretaste of how difficult it's going to be to be a Jew or to be a Christian or to be a, a, a Muslim. Religion and life are very hard, and the Bible foretells that. I'll just tack on to what I've heard just a sentence or two about what Alan just said. Uh, yeah, it seems to me a little self-serving uh, to blame Abraham for almost having killed his son for being intended. When we constantly send out, you know, not just Israeli parents, of course, we, of course. We send out thousands and millions of young people, young men and women, to be killed in, 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 for some higher cause all the time. It seems a little self-serving and hypocritical that we focus on this particular case. And maybe that's one of the things that should bring to mind if we read it. Right. Is that in the sense that the story is meant to be a warning about our willingness to do that? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. For those who are not aware, Alan has, is on record as saying that had Hitler survived, he would have been able to defend him and won the case for Hitler. So it's not surprising that he would also try and defend this indefensible attempted case of murder. <laughs> but okay. Alan, I'm surprised that you would accept the, the basis of, the, of these stories from the Bible. I'm not aware that you're exactly a, a God guy. You're not a believer. At the very least, you're an agnostic, so why would you even accept this? And is the reason we're discussing this, these stories is an awareness that these are fairy tales and meant for discussion and moral instruction, but these things didn't really happen historically, did they, Alan? Well, um, I am a believer. I am a believer in the power of the Bible. I love the Bible. I've taught courses on the Bible for years. I studied the Bible as uh, a child. The Bible has been very influential in my life. I struggle with the concept of God. I think anybody after the Holocaust has to struggle with the concept of a God. But uh, I get tremendous lesson uh, and, 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 and education from the Bible. I've said also that if I were on an island with my students and we had only one FedEx package and could order one book for me to teach my students, it would probably be uh, the Bible. I think you can teach from the Bible history and philosophy and morality and literature and so many other things. So one does not have to be a believer in a specific in, in, in interfering or intruding God. As far as Hitler is concerned, let me get the, the, the story absolutely straight. What I said was if Hitler were found in the deserts of, uh, or somewhere in Brazil, 40 years later, and he were being tried uh, for crimes that didn't exist at the time that he committed these horrendous, horrible crimes, um, I think that uh, a case could be made to defend him. And I said, if no, one, if no other lawyer in the world were willing to defend him, 
and therefore he would go free for lack of any possible representation, I would defend him. I also said that if he called me in to defend him in 1943 or 1944, I would have accepted and I would have killed him. Uh, as an act of civil disobedience, I've been tempted to do that with several of my other clients, but <laughs> it's never happened so far. It, I, but I hold that out as a possibility. That, go back one to, more question. We, let me just right okay, okay, go, ahead. No, go ahead, Harvey. Go ahead. I go just ahead. want to refer to the fairy tales. So. Yes, that's great. Uh, of course, ask. the Bible has fairy tales in it. It also has history. It also has love songs. It also has epistles. It has dreams. It has annals. It has. That's, that's one of the points of my book, by the way. It's not a single type of literature here. There's all kind, it's a library. That's what Bible of means. Course, it means course. library. It, Find out what kind of, and there's nothing wrong with fairy tales. Yeah. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with, uh, we, we learn from all these different sources, as Alan's just said. One of the things in the, in the book, though, Harvey, is also that you discovered that over the course of your life. Yeah, in other yeah. words, it wasn't introduced to you that no, way. It was, it was a revelation to you that that could be read so many different ways. Right, right. Right. Wonderful. We have one question behind you for last question, and then we've got a break. I'd like to, to briefly quote a great Jewish poet who commented on this very case and then suggest the rematch. And the poet, of course, is Bob Dylan, yep. who said, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. Right. Got God it. said, no. Abe said, what? Um, God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. I suggest the wrong defendant was on trial today, uh -huh. and that a retrial, the trial of Yahweh, would be fascinating, especially if Professor Cox would take the defense. Uh -huh. <laughs> if, if a theologian can get out of his comfort zone and be a lawyer, Professor Durasowicz, you could be a great prosecutor. <laughs> I would do it. I would do it. I would take Harvey, it. are you on? Okay. <laughs> no, I, I think to be, to be a lawyer, I think next year we ought to put your namesake on trial. David, uh, Judge Barron's first name is David. And uh, King David, of course, committed a horrible crime. He f saw this beautiful Bathsheba, and he lusted after her, discovered she was married, and found her husband, sent him out to the front, put him on the front line in order to get him killed so he could marry her. That would be a hard one to defend. Terrific. Well, unfortunately, we're uh, out of time, but the good news is there are no end of defendants in this world uh, uh, for, for Alan to represent and for Harvey to prosecute. Just, just, just one second. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> I appreciate the suggestion that I become a lawyer, and I would say it looks like a piece of cake. <laughs> if you become a lawyer, I'm becoming a rabbi. <laughs> Thank you very much. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.